listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning. It's good to be here today. I have to tell you, though, before I start, I'm beginning to develop a little complex about when I speak. I think Jason and Ricardo are, you know, out to get me. So, you know, about a year ago when I spoke, I had to do the sex talk. That was a little awkward. And then, then one of the last sermon series was on conflict resolution, and Jody and I talked, and I had to confess in front of you all that I hate her cat, so that was really <laughs> awkward as well. And, and then this week, I mean, Ray Lozano last week, that was absolutely amazing. And somehow these guys put me on the schedule to follow him the next week, you know. So if you were here last Sunday, it was your first Sunday. You know, this is like back to reality here. So it's a little bit uh, rough on you, I'm sure. And, you know, speaking of that cat, this is, you know, I know some of you that are part of our, our uh, some of you that are part of our grow group know this. You know, we call her the devil cat. And the proof, guys, I have proof now. I'm working on my sermon, and she gets up and sits right on the Bible, so I can't even read what I'm supposed to be studying, so that's your proof right there. Um, We're going to be looking today at a, um, where Jesus gives what we call the I am the bread of life message. It's where he identifies himself as the bread of life, and it's part of this whole series that we're continuing in the book of John, and in this series, we're, we're looking at these passages and gaining an understanding of who Christ is, who his character is, the nature of him, the impact that he makes on our lives. And um, to understand the portion of the scripture that we'll be going through today, it's really important to understand the two preceding incidents that were part of the narrative in John chapter 6. A lot of times in the Gospels, there'll be one sort of story and then immediately after another story, but they aren't necessarily that close in time. But what we're going to see in the book of John in chapter 6 today is a, uh, the portion that we're going to be studying follows, follows in close proximity to two previous narratives. So the first of those narratives is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And just to give you a little bit of perspective on it, Jesus had been preaching in one side of the Sea of Galilee. They cross over to the other side, the far side. Uh, People follow them there. He's sharing uh, his message with them in that location. As time goes on, the disciples come to him and say, hey, listen, these people have had nothing to eat. Uh, There's no restaurants. There's no Mickey D's around here. We're going to have to send them away for them to be able to get food. And, uh, and he goes on speaking, and then uh, their provision is that this one young man who obeyed his mom and took his five uh, loaves of bread and two little fish with him for his lunch, Jesus takes that and multiplies it to the group. And the scriptures tell us that 5,000 people were fed at that time, 5,000 men, in fact, and if we figure that there were some women and children in the group, there may have been as many as 15,000 people that were fed that day in a truly miraculous fashion. And uh, for these people, this was an amazing event in that their hope for the Messiah that would help them overcome the Romans would also provide for them the ability to meet their everyday needs. And then this is immediately followed. So after the feeding of the 5,000 happens, the disciples get on a boat and they go back across the lake to where they had been before. But Jesus stays behind. 
And then he actually decides to go meet them and he walks across the water. The disciples witness this event. The boat lands on the other side and Jesus is there with them. But the people that had been left behind on the other side said, hey, wait a second. I thought he stayed over there when the disciples left. How did he get on the other side of the water? They didn't actually witness the event. The disciples were the ones that witnessed the walking on water. So that leads us to our passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to be in John chapter 6, and we're going to be beginning with verse 25. I'm actually going to read through the full passage of 25 through 40, and then we're going to break it down and talk about some conclusions that we can make from it. So John chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's just pause in a moment of prayer. God, as we consider this passage today, I just would ask that it would come alive for each person that's here, Lord, that we would understand what you would have for us, Lord, out of this passage. God, we just thank you that you are the bread of life. We ask you to feed us through your word today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage begins with this question from these uh, individuals who said, hey, wait a second, you were here, you ended up here, when did you get over here? And Jesus gives an insightful answer to them in verse 26. He says, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because of you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So this is his recognition on the part of Christ that the reason that they were interested in finding out more about him and following him where he was at is because he met their most basic need. And in some ways, we don't understand that in the world that we're in today, but these people would have had to work hard, long hours in order for them to meet just the most basic needs that they had in their society. And for us today, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, probably for the typical person in this audience, we could work for maybe 15 minutes at our job and have earned enough money to buy a loaf of bread. Uh, but for them in their time period, it was very different. Um, it's hard for uh, there to be a comparison with the comparative worth of money in that time period to the time period today. But when I was doing a little bit of research on this, 
uh, there was a, a good example. It was a Roman emperor, maybe a century or two after this time period where this was written. And because of some runaway inflation within the Roman Empire, he put a system of price controls into place. And so from the literature on that, we can have a little bit of a sense of what it meant for this provision of bread. Um, at this time of this Roman emperor, the average person's daily wage was set at a price point where they would be able to purchase at the end of 10 or 12 hours of work about two and a half loaves of bread. And, uh, and again, you know, most of us might go through a loaf of bread in a week, but when it's the staple part of your diet and you're feeding five or six people with it, you realize that that's not very much. I mean, this is a group of people that ate meat maybe once or twice a week. Uh, they ate fruits and vegetables only when they were in season. Bread was the part of their, their uh, diet that was there every day. So it, was, it meant a, a lot to them that Jesus had provided this to them. And for them, this was a, a messianic picture for them because their view was that the Messiah was coming at any moment. He was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, Empire and he was going to provide for them in meeting their everyday needs. So they were excited about this. This is what they were looking for. And you know, just to give you sort of a comparable picture of what it might mean today, this would be like if Jesus had done this miracle and you know, paid your monthly mortgage payment, uh, bought you a new car, and paid down your credit card debt. Okay, That's the level of excitement these people had for it. So now you get a little bit of a flavor of that, right? Um, so it goes on, verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So it's a reminder about what's supposed to be important. So in that time period, he's saying to them, hey, you put all this time into working for this bread that's not going to last very long, and then the very next day you got to get up and do it all over again, and again uh, work for that bread. He says, you know, think for something, work for something that's much more important that's going to last forever. And I thought, how much more for, for us than it is for them, right? Here they are working for their bare essentials of life, and what are we working for? Oftentimes it's a bigger house, uh, the vacation that we really want, a nicer car, uh, all these kind of things that are not very important. So if God's message, if Christ's message to them was to work for something important, how much more is that message for us today to be working for something important? And in, this, in that verse, he uses this expression, son of man. And again, to the audience, this was a messianic reference. This is first used in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, talking about the end times. And, and it was a picture that these people would have understood right away that Jesus Christ was, was making a reference to himself as the Messiah. It's a, a reference, the son of man, that, was used, uh, that Christ uses 81 times in the Gospels to describe himself goes on in verse uh, 28. There's this response from the people. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? I think it's so funny. He's given this longish answer, and they fixate on one word, and that was the word works. What do we need to do in order to achieve what you're talking about? How do we get God's favor? And so, you know, there's this whole focus on, on how can we earn what God could give to us. And then Christ gives an answer. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I love how this counterintuitive Christ's answer is, right? So they have this idea of work that's this drudgery. It's that back-breaking effort that has to go into 10 or 12 hours a day of, of slaving away at what they do. And then Christ sort of takes that same word and says, hey, the work you need to do, the work you need to do, all you need to do is to believe in uh, the one that he has sent. 
And the people were, you know, there's this big reaction from them, right? They completely understood right away. No, not really, right? (laughs) But it made me think about it. Why is it so difficult to just do that work, right? They ask the question about what work they need to do. What works do they need to do to earn God's favor? And God's answer is all you need to do is believe. Why is that so difficult? As I was thinking about this, I think there's really three things that make that difficult for us as a human being. Uh, first, we feel like we want to earn things, right? We, we want to deserve what we get in life, and that's not necessarily the way that it always works, but that's our mindset as human beings. We believe that because of what we do, some reward accrues to us. But the second reason it's difficult is there's a tendency, a desire on our part to trust ourselves Maybe in some cases to trust something completely different, right? So there's this tendency to trust ourselves. So we want to be able to do it ourselves. We want to be able to figure it out, work our way to our own salvation. Uh, I can get out of this. I can do this. And then in some cases, though, there's a desire to trust something else, to trust our, um, you know, our wealth, to trust our, our heritage in some way, to trust the, our, our parents' faith, to trust Uh, the fact of our ethnicity or whatever it is. We have all these things that we might trust in instead of what he stated in this passage. Then finally, the third reason I think this is so difficult for us is that by dint of the statement that he makes there, says to believe in the one he has sent, he's saying there's just one way to be right with God, one way to have a relationship with God. And we live in this postmodern world today that makes that statement so difficult. We want to believe that there's many ways to God, that we sort of can all find our own way and, uh, and make ourselves right before God in that way. And that's not what it's saying. It says all you have to do is to believe in the one he has sent. So then there's this response from the people in uh, verses 30 and 31. So they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And, you know, you'd like to think that this was really a legitimate question, right? But you got to think about this a little bit. What had just happened the previous day? He had fed 15,000 people. What more of a sign did these people want, right? So I'm not really sure, and they asked this question, that they really were asking it in a truthful kind of way. They were, in some ways, it was a little bit of a setup for them. They're saying, hey, you're claiming to be the Messiah. The person that we know of that came from God was Moses. And Moses did this thing where he was able to provide bread for us for maybe 40 years or however long it was in the wilderness. They were there for 40 years. I'm not sure the manna was always there for them. But there was this provision of manna uh, for them. So, hey, if Moses could do this, what are you going to do for us? And I think it's interesting when you start looking at Jesus' response in verse uh, 32. It's really brilliant. He says, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus responds as a rabbi would in that time period. And again, this is the way that people would have understood it. They would have recognized that as a teacher, what he's done is taken what they've stated and they quoted or roughly quoted Exodus 16.4, Uh, They didn't quote it very well, but he takes it and he says, hey, listen, you're saying this, but this is actually the way to understand it. So what they were saying with it is, hey, look what Moses did for us for four years, 40 years. And and God's like, and Jesus like, time out here. 
you know, that wasn't Moses. That was God providing the manna for you. And he said, on top of that, that manna that he provided, I don't know if you remember this. So this is the story of the Israelites. They were in slavery in Egypt. And because of God, through the leadership of Moses, they were led out from there to go to the promised land. But then because of their disobedience, they ended up having to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they were near to starvation and God provides for them manna from heaven. It was a bread-like substance that would be there in the mornings when they would wake up, they would collect it, they would use it to eat, um, and uh, it sustained them during that time. But what Christ points out in this passage is, hey, wait a second, it wasn't Moses that was provided it, that provided it, it was God. And then on top of that, that manna that was provided, it was only good for one day. In fact, if they tried to keep it a second day, it would go mealy and wormy and they wouldn't be able to use it during that second day. And so what Christ's response is here is say, you know, first of all, that was God that provided it. Second of all, God's giving you a bread now that will last for eternity. This is so much better than the bread, the manna that was being provided to the Israelites at that time. And this again, I mean, this is a, a wake up call for them. You've asked for a sign uh, yes, I turned, I, I fed 15,000 people yesterday, but the ultimate thing is that uh, the bread that God is giving now is going to last for eternity. It's so different than what you've experienced in the past. That, that sign that you saw as being so great and wonderful, really, that's nothing compared to the sign that you should be seeing right now. So then the audience, I mean, they're catching on quickly at this point, right? So they say, sir, from now on, give us this bread, right? And then Jesus responds to them. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The Jewish audience at that time would have understood this word picture that was being created so if you look at, there are a lot of extra biblical texts that these various religious leaders you know, from uh, Talmudic period forward had been, would have used where they would have talked about this provision of manner and used it as a metaphor for God's provision of other things, uh, wisdom, strength, victory over enemies, uh, those kinds of things. And then Jesus begins his statement with saying, I am the bread of life. And again, for his audience, this was a recognition of Christ's claim to being deity. Uh, they knew this harked back to the time when Moses was at the burning bush and God identifies himself as I am and says that I am has sent you to uh, free his people from the Egyptians. And so when Christ uses that word here, it, uh, they, the audience quickly would grasp the fact that that. Christ is claiming to be God. It's actually one of seven different I am statements that are in the book of John. And I think uh, through them, I think we'll actually study all of them in this series. They are part of the way that we begin to understand a little bit about the nature and character of Christ, specifically in uh, the book of John. And he says, I am the bread of life. And this is something very different. He's contrasting it even with what he's done the day before. He's contrasting it with the manna. He's contrasting it with what he's done the day before because he's saying that this is a spiritual bread that will fulfill all of our spiritual uh, needs. That we will not have uh, spiritual hunger or spiritual thirst ever again. 
So for the people of that time period, their idea of bread was that it, it was the basic necessity of life. And what Christ is saying in this is that that basic need, that basic spiritual need that every single one of us has, I'm here to meet that need, to fulfill that need for you. So for every one of us, we have this, this innate sense that there's, um, there's a desire for us to be fulfilled, to recognize that what is is not always right, right? That we have an emptiness within us, that there's uh, something about us that's, that's broken, um, and that there's even more so that there's a brokenness in the world, that what we see in the world around us is, is not the way that it should be. Bad things happen. Evil can prevail, it seems like, in this world. Things are not the way that they should be. There's this deep spiritual longing in each one of us, and that's a longing to be reconnected with our creator. That's what we were made to be in. And what Christ is saying in, his, in this passage is that that very basic need that you have, I am here to meet that need. I am the bread of life. I'm that spiritual sustenance for that basic meeting, that basic need for you. And I don't just meet it once. I meet it for eternity for you. It's a great promise of what Christ has done for us. And then he goes on in, in, the, in verses uh, 36, 37, 38, and 39, and it's just, a continuation of the promise that he's made. And it's, um, it's him recognizing and committing to the fact that God's given him this role to do, and that's to take the ones that God has given him and to keep them safe for all eternity. So again, it's this promise that I'm meeting your most basic uh, spiritual needs. I'm fulfilling that desire for relationship with your creator that you have, and I'm gonna sustain that relationship through all of eternity. Then he finishes this little passage in verse 40. By saying this, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Um, and again, this is something, a picture that we don't necessarily understand in our world today, but the audience of Christ's time period would have understood it. For them, they would have harked back to uh, one of the things that happened when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They had begun to complain and, uh, against Moses and against God. Why have you brought us out here? And as a consequence for that, these poisonous snakes came into their midst and were biting people and people were dying because of it. And they recognized that this is happening because of their sin. They go to Moses and say, can you do something about this? God, we wanna ask for forgiveness. And the response when Moses goes to God, the response was, what I want you to do is I want you to take a pole and we're gonna put a bronze snake on that pole. And if the people will look to that snake, then I will heal them. And you know, in some ways we look at this story and think, why did that happen? We don't really know. But it is a picture that Christ uses at this point in a really powerful way because he says the same thing. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, right? That what happens to the Son later? He's hung on a cross. And it's on that cross that he takes on our sin and makes possible our relationship with God. He's saying everyone that looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That's God's promise to us through Christ in this passage, and it's a picture that this audience would have well understood. But not everyone responds to this the same way, and the same thing happens today. Not everybody responds to this the same way, and I wanna look as we finish this morning at, at three responses, what those responses were like and how they can be a little bit like where you may be as well. These go on, I'm not gonna read through each of the passages, but you can, if you read through the rest of this chapter, you can see how these responses are lived out. There's one response from the Jewish sort of religious leaders. 
And they look at this thing and they say, well, hey, this is, this is Jesus. We sort of know him. He grew up down the street there. And uh, his, his, his dad is Joseph. His mom is Mary. Uh, you know, who does he think he is? This is guy, is, there's nothing special about him. In fact, in some ways, he's not even as good as we are because, you know, we keep the law a lot better than he does. He does all these things that he's not supposed to do. And so their response is that, hey, this guy is, is just a human being. He's a person sort of just like us. And I thought about this. I thought, you know, there's, and some of you may be in this category today, but there's a tendency for us today to look at and say, well, maybe he was an historical figure that existed, you know, 2,000 plus years ago. Uh, he's a person just like us. Why the fuss? I mean, he certainly was not the Messiah. He was not, certainly not the way to have a relationship with a fictitious God. So, you know, there's, there's this element to it to just want to keep Jesus Christ as simply a human being. That was one response from the people that were listening that day. Then there was a second response, and it was a group of people called uh, disciples. And they weren't the 12 disciples that we often think of. It was a group of people that had begun to follow Jesus. So they, uh, the word disciple just means follower. And so they were a uh, group of people that were beginning to follow Jesus. And uh, they listened to what his teaching on this point, and they found it really difficult. This is too hard, they said. Uh, to them, it might have been, some of it was that it was too hard to understand and then for some of it, it was just too difficult to do. This is asking a lot of me. And I thought, that's a little bit like us today, right? There's some of you that may be in that same situation today that um, you recognize in that what Christ is saying in this passage, it's demanding a lot of you. And if, I were, if you were to follow it, if I were to follow it fully, it would have high expectations for who I am and what I do with my life. Some of you may be in a relationship that you know is not a good relationship, that's not where you're supposed to be, but, but if, I, if I follow Christ the way he's asking for here, uh, I would have to get out of this relationship. That's just too difficult. I don't want to do it. Some of you may be here and you're, you're trusting in your wealth or you're trusting in your ability to earn and, uh, and it, it, you're recognizing that God's calling you to do something with it. And if I were to follow him fully, then it would mean doing something different with this wealth, this thing that's really important to me. Um, some of you may be in a situation where, where you're, um, you recognize that what Christ is asking you to do is so difficult that you want to walk away from Christ rather than giving up this thing. So, you know, maybe it's a, uh, an addiction-related issue where, you know, I'm just not ready to give up my party lifestyle and, and my, uh, you know, pharmaceutical use of alcohol or drugs in order to follow Christ the way that I should. I, I'm going to walk away from Christ because it's too difficult for me to do this. And that was what this group of disciples did. They actually stopped following Christ at this point specifically because this is too difficult. It was asking too much of them. It was too hard to accept. And there's a third response, though. This wasn't the only responses that were there. There was a third response, and it's the response of Peter in verses 67 to 69. And I want to just read that for you. Um, after these other disciples have left, Jesus says to the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
This is the response that all of us should have to this message where Christ has said, I am the bread of life. Look at what Peter's done in this passage. He says, you have the words of eternal life. That's exactly what Christ is saying there. That ultimate need that you have on an everyday basis to be in relationship with God. I am meeting that need. I am the bread of life and not just for now, but for eternity. Peter recognizes that part of him part of his message and he goes on and says we believe that you are the holy one of God wasn't that the whole point of the message that the the audience was missing in what Christ was saying earlier he says uh, in verse 29 the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent he goes on and over and over again points to himself as being the one who's come from God and that's what Peter recognizes at the end of this passage so we have that opportunity to think about this three responses he's just a human being you know, lived in history at some point, might have had a few good things to say, but I don't really need to do much with it. Or two, you know, he's asking me to do something difficult. Do I just walk away because it's too hard? Or do I, do, do I respond the way that Peter's as, as responding, where he says, uh, I recognize him for who he really is, uh, the son of God who's come to make possible my relationship with God Let's close right there and I'll have the worship team come back up. So we have a decision to really make when we hear a message like that. What kind of response will we give? Are we willing to be like Peter? Because Peter's response, part of Peter's response is, is also in response to the fact that these other disciples have left. I'm willing to do those hard things in order to follow Christ. And my challenge for you today is to be like Peter, to recognize Christ for who he really is. And when we recognize him as the son of God, we see our own lostness, our own brokenness, and our, our deep need to, uh, to have a relationship with God through Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we love you. We thank you for... We thank you for this message today, Lord, that you are the bread of life, that Christ meets our most basic needs and fills them in a way that leaves us never hungry and never thirsty in a spiritual sense, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you did send your son, you did make possible a relationship with you, Lord, and that in our lostness, in our brokenness, in the brokenness of the world around us, you can be counted on to meet that spiritual need for us, Lord. Thank you. Lord, as our ushers come forward also, Lord, and we, we take our morning offering, Lord, we'd ask that these tithes, these offerings would go to further your kingdom's work in Redlands, Lord, in our region and around the world. Lord, we thank you for each giver and we thank you for the opportunity we have to give back to you just a portion of what you've given to us, Lord. We ask this in your son's name, amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.